back to G.I. Pearls, the gastroenterology and hepatology literature review podcast where I read the journals so you don't have to. I've been in a bit of a hiatus, sorry about that. As you see, G.I. Pearls is not dead. If you like what you hear, please leave a review on iTunes or whatever podcast catcher you're using to listen to this. It really helps others discover the podcast. And if you have papers you want me to read, please send them to info at gipearls.com and follow me on Twitter at gi underscore pearls. All right, shall we crack open those journals now? We start off today's podcast with an interesting study out of The Lancet. The title is Lyophilized Oral Fecal Microbiota Transplantation for Ulcerative Colitis, the LOTUS trial. And it's a randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial. Caveat here is that it was terminated early due to COVID, and only a few patients were recruited, but it is a promising trial. This comes out of University of Sydney, Australia, About 15 patients with ulcerative colitis were randomly assigned to receive FMT versus placebo. This was a lyophilized oral version of FMT, looking at what happens to steroid-free remission and endoscopic remission or response in UC patients. Difference was quite dramatic. 50% of patients in FMT group responded versus only 15 in the placebo group. In terms of effect size, this probably is the largest I've seen in terms of treatment. Another subgroup of the trial was the patients who were in endoscopic remission were then assigned to either continue FMT or not, and this was open label. And all the four patients in FMT group who were in clinical endoscopic and histological remission at 56 weeks of doing lyophilized FMT compared to none of the patients who have stopped FMT. So what made this study so special compared to other FMT trials? One thing was that the response rates were much lower in other trials. It may have something to do with the fact that in order to, quote, help engraftment of FMT, end quote, the patients were pre-treated with a hammer of amoxicillin, metronidazole, and doxycycline for two weeks prior to FMT. Two points I want to make. One is this is very encouraging, and I wish the trial was larger. And two, this is a good study with clearly defined endpoints and not just a questionnaire as to whether you felt better after treatment, but with endoscopic evidence of healing. And one more point, it's pills, not colonoscopy, with poop sprayed in your colon or injections, so it's a huge plus. And FMT is hopefully way cheaper to make compared to biologics. So it looks promising. Just the other day I had a postpolypectomy bleed. Not a good thing. Clips generally thought to prevent this type of thing. So this next study from the same issue of The Lancet, Gastro, is titled Effect of Prophylactic Endoscopic Clip Placement on Clinically Significant Post-Endoscopic Mucosal Resection Bleeding in the Right Colon, a Single-Center Randomized Controlled Trial. Not the first trial to look at this, but the more the merrier. This is another study out of Australia, by the way, Sydney, to be more precise. First author is Sunil Gupta. They looked at over 100 patients with clipping and over 100 without. And did the clips make a difference in this trial? Looking at non-pedunculated polyps over 20 millimeters or larger in the right colon, 3.4% of patients with clip had a post-polypectomy bleed versus 10.6% of patients without clips. No difference in perforation or other adverse events. This works out the number needed to clip off about 14, which is not bad at all. Several points. All polyp edges were burned with Irby soft coag to prevent recurrence. Clips were placed about 5 millimeter apart or so. And this is another paper supporting the idea of clipping large polypectomies in the right colon. The previous paper that has an agreement with this is the one from Heiko Pohl from my own home state of New Hampshire, 
where there was a reduction of about 6% in bleeding rates, though observational in other randomized trials didn't show a difference, by the way. Keep in mind that even in this trial, most of the patients who had clinically significant bleed were on antithrombotic therapy, 10 out of 16. So I'd favor clipping patients on blood thinners as well. The other part that was interesting in this trial is that only 3 out of 16 patients who bled required endoscopy or angiography. As we know, the data for smaller polyps is on the side of not clipping. But for larger ones, looks like some clipping would be in order. The next paper is very clinically relevant. A small bowel capsule endoscopy is a great tool. You can catch bleeds, diagnose Crohn's disease, and even find tumors on occasion. How often do you use this in patients with a history of stomach surgery? I don't think it should be a problem. If anything, it should be easier because there's a less chance of a capsule just swimming around in the stomach for eight hours. This is the SAGA study, the small bowel capsule endoscopy in patients with altered gastric anatomy, published in GIE. This was a retrospective multicenter cohort study looking at what happened to the capsules in patients with Whipple, Billroth 1 and 2, sleeves, and gastric bypass patients, looking at diagnostic yields and transit time, amongst other things. Here is what they found after looking at over 200 patients. Overall, completion rates was about 85%, which isn't bad. Only 6% of patients' capsule got delayed due to anatomy, and only one retained capsule was noted out of 200. Over 60% of capsules had an abnormal finding. Vascular lesions, 21%. Angioectasias, 15.3%. Inflammatory lesions with erosions, ulcers, in 23%. And 2.8% with blood visible. It was strange that small bowel transit time was longer for endoscopically deployed capsules than orally ingested ones. But overall, orally ingested capsules had an 84% completion rate and also high cleanliness rate, about 92% with a good diagnostic yield. It's unclear how significant these would be if they don't bleed. I never thought it would be unsafe to do capsules in gastric surgery patients, but here's some data for you if you were worried. It appears to be okay. Oh my goodness, another Australian paper. Do you routinely biopsy patients with new diagnosis of hemochromatosis? I guess it depends how bad their numbers are, but how accurate are the fibrosis predicting scores like APRI and FIB4 when used in patients with hemochromatosis. I think they're useful. Here's a study of 181 patients who were diagnosed with HFE-associated hemochromatosis, and they respectively looked at fibrosis stages based on biopsy versus APRI and FIB4. Well, they also used this GPR score, which I never use, but just so you know. And how good were these scores at judging fibrosis in hemochromatosis? A pre-score of above 0.44 had an area under the curve of 0.88, which is above 80% sensitivity and specificity for advanced fibrosis. And FIB4 didn't do much worse. It also had an above 80% sensitivity and specificity. Good news is that phlebotomy led to significant reduction in APRI and FIB4 scores, and it paralleled the fibrosis regression observed in biopsies. APRI was able to capture 87% of patients whose fibrosis regressed to stage F1, F2. So here's a good retrospectively evaluated measure of accuracy of a pre and FIB4 for your patients with hemochromatosis. Maybe you'll avoid some biopsies. Now, for a country of less than 26 million people, Australia sure puts out a lot of gastroenterology papers. I mean, this is impressive. Here's another interesting paper. Barrett's esophagus diagnosis is a bit of a pain, mostly because you have patients with long Barrett's that you keep biopsying for decades, and that doesn't go anywhere. 
Then you have people who had low-grade dysplasia that rapidly progresses to cancer. This next paper looked at six Barrett's esophagus referral units where community docs referred their patients to these six centers of expertise. Patients with low-grade dysplasia were referred here and had a repeat endoscopy. And they looked at what the endoscopist and pathologist at these referral units see versus the community practices. Now, a total of 188 patients were referred, and they zoomed in on patients who were examined within six months of referral, leaving them with 106 patients. And in this group, 11% of patients, a total of 12, were upgraded from low-grade dysplasia to high-grade dysplasia, with one of the cases coming back as intramucosal carcinoma. And 18% of patients were on the opposite side, having been downgraded to indeterminate to non-dysplastic Barrett's. 71% of patients, vast majority, retained their status of low-grade dysplasia. So now 75 patients with confirmed low-grade dysplasia by their pathologist. Median time from referral to this moment was 80 days. So now the endoscopist at this fancy center goes and looks. What do they find? 27% of patients have now a diagnosis of high-grade dysplasia, intramucosal cancer, or submucosal cancer. And only less than half of the patients with initial low-grade dysplasia stayed there, which means that another 27% of patients now have regressed to non-dysplastic Barrett's. And 9 out of 75 patients had a visible lesion found at relook endoscopy. So now that you get the picture, what does it all mean? Authors find four important conclusions. One, low-grade dysplasia patients will have a lot of high-grade and cancer at relook two or three months later. Now, second, not sure if I agree here, but the authors think that it's likely represent high prevalence of high-grade dysplasia rather than progression over two months. Thirdly, Visible lesions may have been missed at community clinics, and this may explain some of the data here. Last point the authors made is obvious because I reviewed this with you very well. There is a good agreement with low-grade dysplasia between pathologists, and review by expert pathologists is a good idea since many patients were upgraded to high-grade dysplasia or beyond on review by the expert pathologist. And the authors think that this casts some doubt on the exact rates of progression that progression reported in the literature may be overestimated because of what I reviewed here, basically mislabeling low-grade dysplasia for high-grade and missing visible lesions. Now, this is Australia, of course, and in the United States, I think the situation is not true at all. I think community docs end up doing more stuff to patients rather than less, and there are certain forces working to make this happen. More care means more revenue. More expensive care, meaning more biopsies, more procedures, and of course, use of new technologies like Watts and RFA, etc., especially now that it's included in the guidelines. And out of fear of litigation, of course, it will mean that community docs may miss less stuff than big academic centers. And this is just a hunch, and I may be completely wrong on this. Also, I'm commenting on the endoscopist practices, not pathologists. Again, I'm not commenting on quality of the care provided here, merely on the quantity of misdiagnoses. Anyway, an interesting study showing an interplay of what goes in to the care of a patient with Barrett's esophagus, often involving caring by at least two different pathologists and sometimes two different endoscopists. All right, let's not leave the continent and stay in Australia, but drastically switch journals maybe, something gastroenterologists rarely read. This is the journal Cell. And the title of the paper is Autism-Related Dietary Preferences Mediate Autism-Gut Microbiome Associations. 
The idea is that microbiome is contributing to the behavioral differences between autism spectrum disorders and what is considered normal. Then perhaps if you change the microbiome, you do away with some of the behavioral differences. So instead of replicating some of the data on this topic from other places, what this group found was evidence of linking behaviors such as repetitive restricting and sensory preferences to reduced dietary diversity, which is in turn associated with reduced microbiome diversity. Basically, every way they looked at the data, there was a persistent and robust association between dietary variables and microbiome, rather than microbiome and autism spectrum behaviors. And here's a quote from the paper that the microbiome fans should take to heart. Quote, for future microbiome studies, we emphasize the importance of collecting detailed dietary data, particularly for ASD and other neuropsychiatric traits, with plausible co-variation of diet with diagnosis or treatment, end quote. Again, in the end, they found no major differences or associations between ASD and the gut microbiome, in contrast to strong association with other phenotypes such as age, dietary variables, and stool consistency. Again, it is restricted dietary habits that drove microbiome changes. And this is an important point for microbiome lovers out there. I'm one of them, by the way. But if you find a change in the microbiome that, that you contribute to a causal inference, it is more likely that you missed something and there's a covariate that you're not thinking about rather than the causal inference that you're trying to make. All right, our short stay in Australia is over. Time to head home and do some guidelines. ACG clinical guideline for the diagnosis and management of GERD. A lot has changed, much remains the same. This is the intro sentence to the new GERD guidelines, an update to the 2013 guidelines by the ACG. There are literally almost 40 recommendations followed by key concepts that the guidelines contain, and I'll try to summarize the salient points. Recommendation 1 and 2 for classic GERD symptoms empiric trial of PPIs once a day before a meal is reasonable and then 8 weeks later you can attempt to stop it. 3. EGD is reserved for those who do not respond to therapy after 8 weeks and ideally after stopping for 2-4 to four weeks. Keep in mind that this is for patients, again, who do not respond to PPI treatments. 4. If you have chest pain and it's not the heart, it is reasonable to see if the esophagus is the issue, either endoscopy or pH monitoring. 5. Don't do barium swallows for GERD alone. 6. For dysphagia or other alarm symptoms, endoscopy is the first test. 7. If EGD is normal and GERD symptoms didn't respond to PPI, try reflux monitoring off of PPI. 8. If a patient has LAC or D esophagitis or long segment Barrett's, there is no point of doing reflux pH monitoring off of therapy just to prove that they have GERD. You pretty much have proven it already. Now, the focus is on extraesophageal symptoms of GERD, and recommendations here are as follows. 1. Look for non-GERD causes of symptoms outside the esophagus. 2. If strictly esophageal symptoms of GERD are found without typical heartburn or regurgitation, consider doing reflux testing up front. 3. If both GERD and atypical symptoms are present, try twice daily PPI for 8 to 12 weeks before any other testing. 4. EGD should not be used as the method to establish a diagnosis of GERD-related asthma, chronic cough, or LPR. 
5. Laryngoscopic diagnosis of LPR is bunk, meaning laryngoscopy alone is not enough to establish diagnosis of LPR. Do some other testing. 6. If there is no objective evidence of reflux, doing anti-reflux surgery for LPR or similar symptoms is not good. Now we come to the meat of things, refractory GERD, and there are four recommendations here. 1. Optimize PPI therapy as the first step for refractory GERD. 2. Esophageal pH monitoring, Bravo or catheter-based, off of PPI if no response to PPIs, or you don't see much evidence of reflux on endoscopy, such as Barrett's or esophagitis. 3. Esophageal impedance pH monitoring on PPI for patients with established diagnosis of GERD if there is no good response to twice-daily PPI therapy. 4. If regurgitation is the primary PPI-responsive symptom, and there is objective evidence of this, anti-reflux surgery, or TIF, should be considered. TIF, of course, being the transoral incisionless fundoplication. Okay, what about surgical options? Here are the guideline recommendations for that. 1. Anti-reflux surgery should be done when there is objective evidence of GERD, such as LAC to D esophagitis, large hiatal hernias, and persistent symptoms. 2. MSA should be an alternative to laparoscopic fundoplication. This is the magnet necklace links. 3. Ruin Y is an option for GERD for obese patients who qualify for it. 4. Strata is not recommended anymore, mainly because the evidence for it is all over the place. 5. TIF should be reserved for those who don't want surgery, but, this is a big one, and don't have LAC or D esophagitis or a hernia over two centimeters. Not sure how many patients this leaves really. Doesn't look like a lot. That's all for recommendations. There are several good key concept statements as well, including in the end, there's a great statement of safety of use of PPIs for GERD describing all the possible associations. And really you can cut and paste the paragraph there and give this as part of your discussion of PPI safety to your patients, or even send that paragraph to your PCPs who refer patients to you. This is my favorite part of the guidelines, actually. Finally, we, as a group of gastroenterologists, that is, have a consensus statement of what we think about PPIs and association of things like kidney disease or calcium. By the way, ACG key concept, this is true. Don't increase your patient's vitamin B12 intake, calcium, or vitamin D intake, and don't routinely monitor bone density just because somebody is on a PPI. And if patient has a renal insufficiency, this is not a contraindication to PPI use. There are many other things in there, so the last box of key concepts is definitely worth a look for all GI docs and PCPs alike. One more thing I want to talk about is the diagnosis and management of acute left-sided colonic diverticulitis. So American College of Physicians just released their set of guidelines on this. I've discussed several articles on this before, basically suggesting that giving antibiotics for uncomplicated diverticulitis may be an overkill. And here are the new guideline statements from ACP published in the Annals of Internal Medicine. So from now on, for uncomplicated diverticulitis, meaning no perforation, no abscess, no phlegmon, no fistula, no obstruction, no bleeding, you should try to select patients who do not warrant antibiotics. And these will be immunocompetent patients without systemic inflammatory response, not medically frail, and not requiring hospitalization. And as such, here are the recommendations. There are only three of them. Recommendation one. 
ACP suggests that clinicians use abdominal CT imaging when there is diagnostic uncertainty in a patient with suspected acute left-sided colonic diverticulitis. Conditional recommendation, low certainty of evidence. Recommendation 2. ACP suggests that clinicians manage most patients with acute uncomplicated left-sided colonic diverticulitis in an outpatient setting and don't admit these people. Conditional recommendation, low certainty of evidence. And the last recommendation is ACP suggests that clinicians initially manage select patients without antibiotics. Yes, without antibiotics. Again, conditional recommendation, low certainty of evidence. So as you see, lack of antibiotics for diverticulitis is starting to make into our guidelines. I think it's a good thing. And that is all I have for you today. Thanks again for listening to GI Pearls, the Gastroenterology and Hepatology Literature Review Podcast, episode 53. I guess this is a bit of a tribute to Australia. So thanks to all those Australians publishing those great papers. If you have papers you want me to read, please send them to info at gipearls.com or hit me up on Twitter. Thanks again. Bye-bye.